Hello and welcome everyone to this Black All Year event. If you missed the previous events, they are available on YouTube and as a podcast. And it's been a little while since we've had um, one of these events. So it'd be a great idea to go back and catch up on what we've done in the past. If you are watching or listening to this after the event, then please like or subscribe as it makes sure you don't miss any material and it helps others to find the content. So as it's been a little while since we did our last event, I thought I would talk to you about why Black All Year. So every October, I'm invited to talk to a range of audiences about equality, diversity and inclusion and about being a Black female leader. And whilst I'm always happy to do this, I got really frustrated that everyone wanted to talk about race in October, Black History Month in the UK, but then went quiet all year round. Because after all, we are Black all year round. I kept saying that we should do year-round events, but nothing happened. And being the person that does, I decided that I should make it happen and Black All Year was born. So I hope that through the events, we'll highlight the issues, challenges, um, as well as the achievements and experiences of Black people who are the minoritized global majority. And a little more on that, I'm sure, later on. So I am absolutely delighted to be able to introduce our guest today. Ranjana, you and I have um, been circulating in the same environments for quite a while, but we never seem to have actually met in person or not properly. So it'd be great to have a cuppa one day um, and meet properly. But Ranjana Bell is a, and I'm sorry for this term, veteran of the battle for equity. She's held and continues to hold senior positions in a number of organisations, such as Chair of the Road to Recovery Trust, Chair of the Northumbria Police Strategic Independent Advisory Group, PCC Independent Member for Police Misconduct Panels, a government-appointed Commissioner for the Women's National Commission, and has been a lay member of Employment Tribunal since 1999. She was awarded an MBE for her work with the police and BME communities in Tyne and Weir in Northumberland in 2014 and has been director of her own company, RBA Equality, Equality and Diversity, since 1998. And Ranjana is also part of the We Are Here Inspirational Women Permanent Exhibition in Newcastle-upon-Tyne's Discovery Museum, which honours exceptional Black and minoritised women who enrich Northeast communities in medicine, healthcare, science, education, activism and politics. So welcome Ranjana. Thank you for that very honourable introduction for me. Well, you know, the, you, you are quite an amazing individual. Um, and um, perhaps start by telling us a little bit about yourself, Ranjana, aside from all of the accolades, who are you? Well, I, I think, well, first of all, I want to say that I'm honoured to be here and Although I can't see any of your faces because on my screen, it appears most of your cameras are off. So I, I'm assuming that you're still sitting there and listening, even though I can't see you, apart from, from you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, what can I say about me? I, I, I was thinking, I've been thinking a lot recently because I've been asked to um, kind of explain my journey to why I, I'm who I am and the way I am. And I think it, it's, it has to be in the context of the four-year-old child that traveled on a ship with my mum and my brother, who was six, to England to find ourselves in a situation where um, my dad 
could not find accommodation to include us in the family. And we were sent off to Essex to a place called Billericay, where rich families, and they were white, who had big houses because they were wealthy, and they'd seen an opportunity to make money on the back of this and set themselves up as unregulated care homes for taking all these lost children. And my brother and I joined a whole, well, there were dormitories of, of children who couldn't stay with their parents until parents could sort out accommodation. And for me, I realize as, as I'm at the age I am now, which is 72, <laughs> I, I try not to remember, but that has deeply affected me. And I, I, I think by that abandonment experience that I had, and then when we did return to live with mom and dad, seeing the way that they were treated in the 1950s, because it was 1955, that I couldn't bear what I saw happening to my mum in particular. And my need to stop it, I think, set the seeds for me to be what I describe myself as a big dog. And I can't help it. And actually, I'm quite proud of it now because when people accuse me uh, or, or people use that terminology of the woke culture is silencing mm. everybody, it's never going to silence me because I'm a great, I'm proud of being woke because it means I'm aware and I will not be silenced. And I think I have the privilege of age and experience and wisdom that enables me to know that you can try and knock it back from me. And if I know I'm right, I will, I will have it out and continue that. So that's me really. But in relation to what we're going to talk about today, one of the things that I've realized is, although I've lived here most of my life from four years old to 72, I've always felt that I didn't quite belong anywhere. I've referred to myself as the floating generation because my mum and dad, but particularly my dad, he wanted so much to be English that we lost our Indian identity as children. Mum and dad didn't because they lived there, but we were very young. And we, I am so ashamed to admit I don't speak Hindi, Punjabi, Urdu. My only language is English and a bit of Spanish now because I go there quite a lot. But I, I'm a tourist in India. I'm not accepted in the UK in the way that I should be. And I still feel kind of floating and I call it stateless. I don't quite know where I belong. And I, I struggle with that. And what breaks my heart is that I hear the fourth generation uh, of young black people, and I'm using black collectively for anyone that's not white and has had experience of racism due to the color of their skin, that they say the same thing, that they don't know who they are or where they fit. And identity is so important to our, our mental well-being that I feel deeply, deeply saddened and heartbroken that we yeah. haven't been able to create a world or a, a country anyway that makes people feel they belong. 
So that's where I'm at, and that's about me, and I'm happy to talk, as you'll soon find out. You have to shut me up. <laughs> and I think I think your experience, I mean, I'm a, I'm a little bit younger than you, not, not a huge amount, but I think that experience and that experience of our parents of wanting us to fit in and to not stand out and therefore make it wanting us to be able to speak the best English we possibly could, so not passing on um, the language of of their their language is actually really common. I know a lot of people, certainly of my age, who um, who can't speak the language of their parents or you know one or other of their parents because there was this real emphasis on you must speak English because if you can't speak good English, then that's another thing to to kind of bully you for. And the ironic thing now is that we know that that children who have multiple languages spoken actually pick up English really, really well. The more language you learn, the better you are at language. Um, but yeah, I can really identify with, with what you were saying there about that, that feeling of being a little bit lost. And I saw a really interesting conversation just last week about, um, particularly for um, Black people of African or Afro-Caribbean descent, um, of that, where where is this place called Black? Because actually a lot of people say I'm Indian or I'm, I'm um, Pakistani or I'm British or I'm, but actually we say we're black. And that, again, that makes us fairly stateless because there isn't a country called black. And um, there isn't a country called Africa, which comes as a surprise to some people. Um, so actually, you know, that that sense of identity, I think I feel myself really blessed because I do call myself a Geordie. And I, that, to me, that's that's kind of my my root being an Ashanti and being a Geordie. But it can be really difficult. And I suppose all of this is touching on this thing of language and how language is used and, and the power. And you do a lot of work um, with the police around this, don't you? Yeah, I I think this debate at the moment is is very very live, especially since Black Lives Matter. And, and people questioning their involvement in that and how we relate to that. And I, I don't know how many of you will know, but the um, the College of Policing and the Police Chiefs Council has told all police services they have to implement a race action plan. And there is a national race action plan. And within that action plan, the chair and the board of that, called the Independent Scrutiny and Oversight Board, is chaired by a, a barrister, black woman, called Abimbala Johnson. And between the College of Policing and the Police Chiefs Council and the chair, Abimbala, the focus of that race action plan is purely focused on black people. And there was a huge debate like, what are they talking about when they say black people? And it turns out the race action plan focus for policing is purely about people of African, Caribbean, or who are black, as in colour of skin. Mm -hmm. That has caused a massive debate and a massive fallout because it, it's almost creating a hierarchy of who, who experiences the worst racism. And there are a lot of police forces who are saying that we don't actually want to go down that road of just focusing on using black in that way but 
but that's because my generation have used the term black since the 1970s as a collective inclusive term. As I said before, for anyone that has experienced racism, discrimination due to the color of their skin uh, or their faith. And I'm happiest using that terminology, but that does not go down well in any other understanding. So if it would help, Stephanie, I can explain the history of the language that led us to where we're, we're at. Yeah, that'd be really useful, thank you. And because I can't see anybody's faces or just a few people's faces nodding, I'm assuming <laughs> that you're okay with that. So I can give you that, that bit of information. So if you think about the history of how, certainly how I came to be here, that we're the immigrants of the 19, of 1950s. And we came because after the war, there were, um, there were so many males, soldiers who had injuries or died that there were a lot of jobs that couldn't be filled. So the government went to recruit from the colonies to ask us all to come to England to do what I consider to be some of the most, um, well, I used to call them dirty jobs till somebody pointed out to me that I was being disrespectful to those occupations. But I wasn't being disrespectful to the people. It was just that that's what they were expected to do, like um, be, be on buses as bus conductors or, or um, work for British Railways and things like that, the jobs that no one else wanted to do. And in the same way that disabled people who were coming back from the war had one particular job secured for them, which was to be a lift attendant. That tells you the thinking that was going on in government at that time. So we were referred to, and I'm sure some of you will still be aware of this, the colored people, because there were those of us coming from what we call South Asia, and there were those coming from the Caribbean. And we've heard a lot more about Windrush over the last few years. So we know there was mass immigration from, from the colonies through Windrush and the ship, the ship was called Windrush. That was the ship that brought people over. And we were all referred to as the colored people. And we were referring to ourselves as the colored, well, my mum and dad were, I was only four years old. So it was the colored people. And then um, in America, there was a bit of a revolution going on around terminology because they too were referring to themselves as the colored people, not the people of color, but colored people. And that still tends to be used by that generation. But there was that, those of you, us that grew up through flower power and, and uh, Woodstock, that's me, that we used to do, and all the music and, and everything that went around that, the revolution was black power. So any of you who have read the history would know that this symbol was a very, very powerful symbol uh, of black power and unity. And there was some very, very powerful speakers and eminent people who spoke out against the racism against black people. And we have black power, black panthers, black is beautiful, all that terminology. So that was happening in America. And as things do, 
by the late 60s, early 70s, we in the UK were talking about that terminology and we were adopting it, not in the way that the US had done, but as a collective term for ourselves. And in the 70s, there was a rise of organisations that would call themselves Black Workers Support Group, Black black advisors, black whatever they wanted to do. But by the 70s, um, the government really didn't like the use of the term black here being used in that way, and they resisted it. And they, they were actually very disrespectful to groups that came together under that banner. And by the early 80s, when there was a quite big revolution, and I'll talk about Newcastle, because in the early 80s, we had our first black women's group, we had our first black youth movement, we had our first black arts group, we had our first black women's refuge. But if we use the term black associated with any of those, we couldn't get any funding because we were seen as being really, really radical and, and extremists. So what we did, which I still laugh about now, we didn't change our terms of reference or what we were there for or what we were doing. We just changed the names to Saheli, Chandni, Angelou Centre. We just craftily put in all these other names and then we could get some money. The one group that got the worst treatment, particularly by Newcastle City Council at that time, was a, a black lesbian group that wanted £50 for um, some, uh, some self-defence training for their members and the council refused to give it to them. So we had homophobia and race and probably misogyny as well kicking in and they didn't get in their money. We, even with our very crafty names, if we applied to the city council for money, we were told to go away because if we went to the Women's Issues Subcommittee, they said, oh no, we don't deal with black groups, sent us to the Race Equality Subcommittee. The Race Equality Subcommittee said, no, you're a women's group, go back to the, the, uh, the women's group. So we had all of this political stuff going on. So strangely at that time, the government decided that we could no longer use the term in any, uh, uh, certainly in engaging with government, and we had to be referred to as ethnic minorities. Mm -hmm. And so for the most of the 70s, well, most of the 80s, we were referred to as ethnic minorities. And there were an awful lot of people who, in my opinion, disrespected us by referring to us as ethnics, which to me sounded like some disease. And actually still happens today. And uh, still I, I, happens today that people will refer to ethnics. Well, we're um, the ethnics, right? So then um, there was a kind of reaction to even ethnic minorities because what was happening were, uh, and they are ethnic minorities, people who were white ethnic minorities, Polish people, Romanian people, Greek people were saying, well, I'm an ethnic minority. So, and I am being cynical here, but the civil servants who were sitting in white were going, oh, we don't mean them. We actually mean the ones whose color's not white. 
So what other terminology can we come up with? So they came up with, with um, minority ethnic communities. So we, we became minority ethnic communities. And at that time, I was working for Newcastle City Council and I had to laugh because they had to reprint everything to change it from ethnic minorities to, to minority ethnic. It didn't change anything in practice, but they changed it. Then there was a, a census and the census, I can't remember which year that was now, but the census showed that people like us wanted to call ourselves black. So the government then introduced BME, black and minority ethnic. So we had BME. That lasted until the maybe the 2000 period where it was being debated because a lot of Asian people, particularly the older generation, were shouting their mouths off saying, I'm not black, I'm Asian. Yeah. So then we have black, Asian and minority ethnic. And if, if people um, if people kind of wonder where that, that kind of kickback from the, the Asian community came, you might want to um, go back on the session that we did which was on anti-blackness and colorism because we explain where a lot of that came from yeah. and it's one of the reasons why i've always hated bame yeah because it was that to me that was introducing even more racism and colorism into a term that wasn't great anyway yeah and i, I just on that which i think is really important something else you need to know about me um certainly and over the last year, I've been to a lot of conferences and meetings where people have been what we call sharing their experiences of their lived experience. And one of the things that I've concluded from that, that we as black people, and again, I'm using it collectively, need to look at ourselves mm -hmm. specifically for how we treat each other. And that, that colorism and that hierarchy and the way that we oppress each other and the reason I say that is the person who made me realize was I heard um, Azim Rafiq talking at a conference this year about his experience of blowing the whistle on the, the uh, cricket board. Mm -hmm. And he says his biggest allies have been his white friends and not the Asian people that he would have expected to support him in that situation. And it's made me reflect on what we have a responsibility to do. It's easy to point the finger and we need to, to challenge racism, but we need to take a hard look at ourselves uh, and, and do what you're saying about addressing that, Stephanie, because it need, it's long overdue. So going back to BAME, the, the whole fallout of BAME, what's slipping in now is people of colour, because that's an American term, in trying to be softer about being inclusive. And to be honest, and, and what was the expression you used earlier, Stephanie? Minority, global majority. The global majority, which I think is very, very interesting and makes a very important statement that black people are the global majority. So that's, to me, that's a challenging description that I love. And that's why I love it. I mean, the first time that I that I saw that, I, it gave me, and I kind of said, oh, you know, global majority. And it gave me such a sense of 
hour, if I'm honest. Mm. And um, I've said this before on these events, but the thought process that went through for me is that actually we are the global majority. There are more non-white people on this planet than there are white people. So we are in the majority. But what we what has happened is we, our needs, our rights have been minoritized. So we are a minoritized global majority. And I think that really accurately describes what has happened to us. We're not a minority, but we have been minoritized. We've been made to be less. And then I kind of sat and I thought, okay, so if, if, if people of color um, are a minoritized global majority, what does that make white people? Well, they're the global minority. Now, for a lot of white people, and I've seen the reaction when I say a global minority, you can see them going, I'm not a minority, but actually they are. But they have been prioritized. So it's a prioritized global minority. And I, again, I think that's a really accurate description of what they are. And one of the reasons I was really keen to do this session on language is because to me, words do have such power. They can change the way somebody thinks and feels in a snap. And I think when you think about being minoritized, it's something that's done to you in the same way that being prioritized is. So that's why I really like those terms. But it's a bit of a mouthful. I will accept that. I mean, you might, you might also see the term um, minoritized ethnic communities as well. I mean, there's a whole mixture of things going on and if you're sitting there thinking I can't, this is all too much you know how am I supposed to to learn to understand any of this uh, let's put this in a context nobody's I have well, let's start again I have never met anyone who said someone spoke to me to ask what language I want myself to be described as so let's get this clear this is imposed language apart from the global majority, mm -hmm. it's all imposed language and black, because that we chose that. We have been shut down and silenced every time we've tried to come up with something that would be acceptable to us. So we, what we end up doing, I apologize. Does it look like I'm sitting in a dark room? It's all right, we can, we can still see you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, um, the problem that we have, and I, and I guess it will apply to all of us really in our professional worlds, is that we're often applying for funding and we're often talking to partners and other organisations. So we have to kind of find a common language that we can use with each other. And unfortunately, we have to play the game if we're putting in a funding bid and we have to play the game for how the funders are using that terminology so I accept that and understand that so if you think about it how often do people get traumatized in thinking oh I'm going to meet a group of people and I might say the wrong thing I don't know how they'll describe themselves and we get that trauma now what I'd say to you is that please try not to do that you you if you use a piece of language whichever one you choose for your organizations and yourselves explain how you're using it which is what i do and then if someone says to me well i don't like that i apologize and i say for the purpose of today what would you like me 
to use then to make you feel included in my presentation. But apart from that, I can't think of an occasion where I'm sitting with people where I'm constantly thinking, what, how do they describe themselves? How are they, what are they going to say? What, what? You know, we've got obsessed with the wrong issue. We don't need to think about that. We, we refer to, to each other by our names and we show the respect on that basis. If there is a need to get a descriptive way of describing something, check it out with somebody. I can see Kainat sitting there and I, I don't feel obsessed with thinking how will Kainat describe herself? What if I say, what if I say people of color and she gets upset about that? And what am I going to do? I, I just, I think we've been, we've been deliberately traumatized by that. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I would like you to not feel that and to walk into a room and be very mindful that some people won't like some of the language, but you can deal with it. Now, the, my analogy for that is if I was going to speak to a group of deaf people and ask each individual, in my description, I might say they're deaf and how they would describe themselves. I might get 20 different descriptions of how they describe themselves. But I don't get, I would hate to be obsessed with thinking, well, what language am I going to use? I try and avoid it and talk to them as people. And if I need to, I'll explain it. Yeah, I find that sometimes that that, um, that over focus and over anxiety around getting it wrong actually makes people make some absolutely horrendous mistakes. And they say things that you would never say in normal conversation, but because they're so focused on, oh, I mustn't say the wrong thing, I mustn't say the wrong thing. I think their brains just kind of shut down. And I've certainly been the recipient of a couple of times. And one of the ones that really stuck out to me was when somebody couldn't work out what my first, which of my names was my first name. Was it Stephanie or was it Edusei? And it's kind of, I've never come across anybody with a surname Stephanie in 15, nearly 51 years. I've never met a Stephanie surname. So what they did was, and I, I did go back to them afterwards and say, I think what happened was you saw my surname, thought, I don't know how to pronounce that. And you went into this internal narrative of, oh, oh, no, I'm going to get this wrong. I'm going to offend. It's a foreign name. It's strange. And it then didn't register that Stephanie is a very simple name that is used a lot in this country. They kind of assumed that my first name must be something really complicated. And that type of thing happens a lot, that people get themselves into a bigger mess because they don't just calm down and don't just ask. You know, if you're really worried about something, just ask. I wonder whether that comes from this otherness. People think that because we are other, we're different, that they couldn't ask what they would ask somebody if they looked the same as them. I don't know. What do you think about that, Rangiana? I, I, I think, it, I, I do believe that the majority of people want to get it right, that people don't want to offend. And I think we've had a whole, how many years? 40 years of being terrorised by the notion of political correctness, now by being woke. And if anybody corrects anybody, you're the, you're, is it called the silence culture? Mm -hmm. And, and you're, the, culture. 
yeah, and you're and you're anti-woke and all of this stuff. All it does is traumatize people. And and on top of that, we we don't get enough time for safe space conversations. Like, well, we're not having a conversation. <laughs> I'm just talking at you. But we we don't get enough uh, space to have safe space conversations where we can feel free to say, I just don't understand it. I need you to help me. And it's all, even in organizations, the public sector, the voluntary sector, nobody's got time to give to this, to actually doing it. So all credit to you, Stephanie, for setting this up, because this is more time than even police officers get with their online 90 minutes of um, E&D training, you know, all of that kind of stuff yeah. is what we're, we're up against. And I, I think the other thing is we're having a huge debate about pronouns. And if you, uh, you know, a lot of people just don't understand the importance of that and what that means. And I think we need to have some sensible conversations around it. And we also, the trans discussion that is so toxic mm -hmm. is going on which again, we need to have those discussions about what does it all mean? How does it impact on my organization? How does it impact on me? How does it impact on the world? Because these are the live debates that are going on right now that are interfering with people's lives. And we're talking life and death in some of these scenarios. Yeah. So, you know, I, what I do is I actively encourage executives to start the journey by having safe space conversations with themselves first to do their leadership correctly, because it, it there's just not enough talking going on now. Not and, that, and should we let the others speak? I was going to yeah, I was going to say if anybody's got any questions or comments, you can either pop them in the chat or. or raise your hand and we'll come to you. And I think that thing about having that safe space conversation, I think there's something about um what well, I think it works it works on all 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 sides, don't like the term sides, but but actually for for me as a black person, if somebody says or does something wrong, to come at them from a place of kindness first. So I'm going to correct you, but I'm going to assume that you've done that through a lack of knowledge and not through malice. But equally, when I do that, and I, I, that's what I try to do, what I'm sometimes met with is real defensiveness, which becomes attack. So actually, if somebody corrects you and corrects you in a way that comes from, I just want to tell you that that's not acceptable. And, and you know, just for future reference, they're not attacking you. Try to get rid of that ego and that defensiveness and listen and just apologize. I think that thing of just... Like you said earlier, just say, I'm really sorry. What's a better way of expressing that? And learn from it. Um, because if not, we get into this, this battle. So has anybody got any kind of questions that they'd like to ask or, or points that they'd like to make? While, while people are thinking and plucking up courage and things, interestingly, the other thing around BAME or uh, Black, Asian, minoritized ethnic, is this idea of clubbing everybody together. And, and then there's, I think it's easy for institutions and companies to then think, oh, well, they're all the same. And as you and I know, 
and um, we are all very different and um, there's huge differences in in um in ethnicities and cultures and to say oh well the BAME people as if we're all one one um one country and we all eat and think and talk the same is really flawed when it comes to a lot of these things hi Natasha, so you've got your hand up there hi Oh, I can't actually hear you, kind of. No, still can't hear you. We'll come back to you. <laughs> Anybody else? Is that me? Have I silenced you with my continual talking? <laughs> You know, I wish I... Uh, Sarah or Sarah's got a hand up yes, as well. Um, just to say um, that that thing you said about not really feeling like you fit in anywhere, I think I can definitely, because I'm a first generation, but um, my mum wanted me to speak Farsi, so I still speak Farsi. I can't read or write it, unfortunately, but um, whenever I visit Iran, I don't feel fully Iranian, and then in the UK, I don't really fully feel fully British, and then you kind of think, well, where do I sit in? And I wonder if there is a new community of us, mm -hmm. um, of people who, I don't know if it's like the diasporic community um, where we are kind of just, I don't know, maybe the bridges <laughs> between these two cultures. But um, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, I think that thing that you said about being the floater generation, um, it is quite... Um, yeah, you feel a bit stateless in it. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I can definitely echo what you're saying with my personal experiences. If, if I was in the room with you, I'd give you a big hug. Even I'd have to ask your permission before I gave you a big hug, of course. But I, I would like to because it, it really breaks my heart that your generation, you're younger than my, I'm looking at you, I'm guessing, you're younger than my grandchildren. And I, I hate, would hate, I hate to think of them not knowing where they belong. And I, if, if you take this to an extreme, and it is an extreme, when people in, in White House, in Whitehall, not White House, in Whitehall are trying to work out why black kids are killing black kids and why stabbings and, and all those horrendous things that are happening, is that they need to look at how that generation, fourth generation, still don't feel they belong and fit. They, they're being damaged by the exclusion that they are experiencing. I'm not condoning anything that they do, but there is there are some things that need to be fixed and healed and they're not happening. And I, I, I just, I just, Sarah, I just feel, I feel sad that, that we, we, we have to have that conversation. Yeah. Hannah, do you want to try, um speaking again because I, I have had a little fiddle around so you might be able to unmute no no um so Kainat's actually said regarding safe space conversations what can organizations do to create safe spaces for calling colleagues in around language and um, and what could and um, what could that look like um and then that I touched on how we can become targeted when we address our colleagues on language and that can feel jarring. So how can we be enabled to feel safer to raise those conversations? Would you like me to? Yes, please. To, to kind of, um, 
I have, well, I attempt this in a safe space conversation. People have to sign up to it. And there are very clear ground rules around how we relate to each other within that conversation. And so far, all I can say is that it's managed. I've been able to facilitate and manage that because unless people feel able to say that thing that we might not want to hear, because often I think, oh, are they really saying that? But I wouldn't display that because it's coming from a good place saying, I just don't understand. Can you help me? So there's a, the rules of mutual respect for, for saying those things, being open to challenge and agreeing to disagree if we can't reach a consensus about that with respect. Now, that's how I run my safe space conversations. And the, the group itself determine the issues that they want to raise. It's not me, as I'm tending to do today, throwing stuff at you all the time. It's what is the most important thing for you to address? So for example, what Stephanie and you have been discussing in the chat, you know, you could say, you know, why I don't understand why people get defensive when I when I say, do you realize the impact of that? Do you realize how that makes me feel? You know, those kinds of things. That that, that safe space conversation should be managed and facilitated to be a positive thing, not a, an attack. I don't know if that helps, but nod your head or shake your head and, <laughs> and i think i think there is something for, for those of us that are facilitating that conversation because as you say i've been in very similar positions and people have said something and you just want to go and but actually when you're in that place and you've given people permission to say things and not to worry about whether it's going to offend or be politically correct you have to then respond appropriately you can't jump down their throats and tell them that they're wrong and it, again, it comes from that position of having to be really kind. I think, uh, you know, that that idea of being kind and being supportive and explaining to people and helping them to learn. That's not to say that I think that we should be doing all of the work, all of the labour, very much the contrary. But actually, there is an element of if people don't know where to start or if people, if people can't ask these questions, then they're never going to get to the place that we're in. I know I've made a huge amount of mistakes around language and around ethnicity in, in the past. Um, and, and that's okay because I learn and each time I make a mistake, um, I learn and hopefully I don't repeat the mistake. Or if I do, I go, I'm really sorry, that was a slip of the tongue. I know it was wrong and I correct myself. So I think that that if, if, if there's one thing that people are going to take away from today, I think it is that just apologise and ask. I think that was a really good point that you made about apologise and ask. Um, so around language. And um, I'm, I'm really interested when you're doing some of this work, what are some of the questions and, and points that other people have come up with in, when you're doing some of this work around language? Well, it's always interesting because it, the safe space conversations are not about just about race. Uh, and just I'll just slip in this other thing of my experience. I, I talk a lot about equality, diversity and inclusion. But the group, I don't know, and it's my question, 
whether because they see me and in the color of my skin and and assume my race which they often think i'm pakistani but i'm actually indian you know have these confusions as well they everybody just wants to talk about race uh, and i'm thinking at the moment there are some other big issues that need to be talked about and i have to direct the group back into talking on the wider basis when it's not just a session on race mm-hmm. so i've concluded that it's possibly because of me but how would they see me but it could be that race is still the biggest issue for them so questions about black lives matter what will i call people you know and the big question why do we us always make everything about race <laughs> right? when they have that's interesting yeah, yeah. yes um, things like you know it it's what about me white lives matter what is white privilege i don't have privilege i'm a poor person you know those are the kinds of things around race that we we're, we're talking about yeah and it, and it's really interesting isn't it because both you and i um have particular ethnicities and we're women we could also be lesbian or bisexual we could actually be trans Yeah. we could be a no, we could be we could have a disability but there is this thing of well you're black so that's what you are and don't step outside of that and don't be anything else because that's who you are i often find though if you're white you're allowed to be multiple things but if you're black you're black and that that is within our communities and externally as well i think that that, that happens um but i i find exactly the same thing actually that when when the word diversity particularly is raised it it brings to people's minds two things i would say ethnicity and gender so when you talk about having a diverse board people will go oh well, we've got a lot of women oh but but most of us are white or all of us are white and i go yeah but how many of you have a disability how many of you are young how many of you are because actually that's all part of diversity but there is a real um tendency to think that the only thing about diversity is ethnicity and or gender right and i think you know i've recently been involved with um some women's organizations in the police you know like the the women's support group and me and the for me the difficulty i have about attending a women's group is i often find myself in the minority and i have to justify everything i say whereas when i'm alongside other women like myself who've done the journey in a different way but we've done the journey i don't have to constantly explain what i'm feeling and what i'm saying and i find that very difficult and to be fair to the white women who desperately want to learn they sometimes they ask to come into a forum where we haven't got the time to be there the learners you know the teachers and the learners that's a different forum for me because often the reason we get together is because we have um, very very specific painful journeys to talk and i suppose that that's part of the discussion that's going on around the trans debate about safe spaces for women and i i think we need safe spaces for us 
to be able to share our journeys and our experiences. But it's very um, complex. And I think, you know, that people think there's a right and wrong answer to these things. There isn't. It's a massive gray area because we as individuals with our own lived experiences, with our own journeys, with our own feelings, have an absolute right to have those validated. And we, we cannot, we should never be shut down from have, having those experiences and those feelings of expressing and so I, I think if you were joining today and hoping that um, Ranjana was going to give you a nice long list of the, the words that you can use um, and the words that you shouldn't use, then you're going to be solely disappointed. But I think hopefully, particularly at the beginning when you were talking about the history of, of that language, then um, I th hopefully that's helped people to understand why some words are not acceptable. And the thing I would also say is that language, of course, evolves. So, um, you know, back in the 70s, the term coloured was seen as a polite way of saying things because black was rude. Um, and actually amongst um, nowadays, it is not. And there are very clear reasons for that. Um, I will just very quickly run through some some terms. So coloured is not acceptable. Black generally is acceptable. People of colour is probably OK. Um, but there are, you know, and I'm going to uh, apologies for using these terms, but these are terms that I see quite often on social media and people will say that is not racist. The term packy, sorry, is not acceptable. The word chinky, sorry, is not acceptable. And the amount of people that will say instead of saying I'm going to get a Chinese meal tonight, will use that term and think there's nothing wrong with it. Um, to me, they are pretty much it. Uh, on par with the n-word which i'm definitely not going to use so but people still think that terms like that are okay chippo equally not acceptable um but uh, but there are a whole range of other terms that people will use and it does very much depend on the individuals whether that's insulting or not i know that, that somebody said in the chat i think sarah said in the chat about the fact that in your organization you use the term B-A-A-M-E thing, and that that's accepted. I personally don't like it. And, and I've kind of said why I don't like it. In the organisation that I'm um, an employee of, um, I use a term, or we use a term of ethnically minoritised, um, because we've been minoritised, we people have been minoritised because of their ethnicity. And that's the term that we use. And it's a term that quite a few voluntary sector organisations in Newcastle have chosen to use. It's still got the floor of it clumps everybody who's not white into, into one box, but it just, it, it's a little bit more accurate a description. But I think it comes back to that thing that, that said of ask, ask people what how they want to be described. My sister, exactly the same ethnicity as me, does not like being described as black. Mm -hmm. She has some very negative connotations with the word black, and she doesn't like being using that word. She never uses that term to describe herself, whereas I don't have those negative connotations, and I do. I, I've, seen, I've seen in the chat, Stephanie, the question about um, coloured being used in Southern Africa, um, we can't influence that really, but we can influence how we understand the term and how we use it. 
And I absolutely agree that it's time to talk about colorism amongst us ourselves and take a hard look at ourselves and how we relate to each other. And I absolutely support that. And I just want to add another term to the ones that you were raising that are still here, half cast. Oh, God, yes. I, I, I'm going to explain this because it, it, it's only in later life that I realised where the origins of these terms come from. When the British occupied India and uh, the, 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 um, the males set up families and had children with Indian women, they were referred to by their caste as half castes and that was what the Indians used to um to it was a derogatory term to say that that child was a half caste it was never a polite term ever mm -hmm. and those communities themselves who still exist today in India called themselves Anglo-Indians not half castes because it was a derogatory term and they referred to themselves as Anglo-Indians. And I don't know if you've seen it or been there or watched any programmes. There are communities of Little England where the Anglo-Indian families who've gone on for generations live an English lifestyle, uh, predominantly English lifestyle in India. So that's how they've, they've adopted themselves. So over here, yeah. it, people wouldn't know that, would they? Then they yeah. use it in a way... And again, there's lots of discussions. There's mixed race, people mm. of dual heritage, mixed heritage. Yeah, I personally prefer mixed heritage because actually I could be three or four different um, heritages or cultures coming together. I think dual is very specific and, and probably incorrect in a lot of times. And race, as somebody said, actually, that's why I use ethnicity rather than race, because we are one race but we are different ethnicities within that. So I don't say mixed race either, because then actually, what am I? Am I mixed alien with human? That'd be quite exciting, actually. I wouldn't mind being that, but, um, but you know, I'm not. Um, so thank you so much, Ranjana. That is almost our hour up. It's been a really, really interesting chat with you. And like I say, we will have to be in person, have a proper, a proper catch up. Um, as I said, this, this is being recorded and will be shared as a recording and as um, a podcast. So if you are watching this on YouTube or listening to the podcast, please like and subscribe to make sure you see our future events. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your wisdom, Anjana. I'm making you sound very old and you look about my age. You know, um, <laughs> you know the truth now. <laughs> Um, but thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We will be having another event in about a month's time. But as I've popped in the chat as well, if there's any suggestions of topics that you'd like us to cover, please let me know because um, I'm really keen to make sure that this conversation keeps going. And equally, if you know of any fantastic speakers who can speak on those topics, that would be even better. So thank you, everybody, and take care.